story makers. May 21st, 2015. And I am here with Indigo Moore. Um, very excited to, um, to have him as a guest here. And, um, Boy, you do a lot of exciting, wonderful things. I'll just uh, share the bio with the, with our audience. Um, Indigo Moore yeah, is. Tablet here also. Okay. Oh, oh, sorry. That's I know we're recording. That's my. Um, I think that's me not muting my my. That's the. Uh, <laughs> okay, that was my All first right. producing. Um, <laughs> okay, back to Indigo Moore. All right. Indigo Moore is a poet, playwright, and author currently residing in Sacramento, California. His second book of poetry, Through the Stonecutter's Window, won the Northwestern, Northwestern University Press's Cave Canem Prize. And his first, and it was the inaugural prize, I think. Um, in that yes, year. it was the first year they offered it. Yeah, so that's cool. And his first book, Taproot, was published as part of Main Street Rag's Editor's Selected Poetry Series. Um, he also, three of his short plays, Harvest, Shuffling, and The Red and Yellow Quartet, debuted at the 60 Million Plus Theater's Spring Playwrights Festival. His stage play, play Live, exclamation point, at the Excelsior, <laughs> was a finalist for the Images Theater Playwright Award and, is, and is, has been optioned to be made into a full-length film, so we'll hopefully talk about that as well. Um, he graduated from, uh, with an MFA from Stone Coast and um, studied poetry, fiction, and script writing, so I'm excited to talk about the intersection of those and the and the divisions that you see or, or don't see. Um, and um, and I will just say has won many prestigious uh, awards and, and been a finalist for many others and is also a teacher and a, and a mentor. Um, and I, I, I want to dig into some of that as well, because um, you have some interesting ideas about mentorship, too, I think. We have a lot of digging to do. I'm ready. <laughs> I know. We have so little time and so much to cover. You're, you're like... At least three different artists in one. <laughs> <laughs> um, we usually start by talking about what we are working on just this week, like what happens to be in front of you creatively this week. So, um, you want to start with that? Absolutely. Uh, I was uh, commissioned to do a a short play, uh, and <laughs> it got on the back burner for a little while, and I've started working on it again, and it's. It was very loose. I was just given uh, three former writers, formers, and they're no longer alive, uh, to write about, and I got to choose which one, and I chose Henry Dumas, who uh, lived in New York. Was He actually didn't get a lot of his works published before he died. Eugene Redman uh, was a person who kept his works alive. But what was interesting to me uh, that I wanted to, to take on was that he had been shot in the subway in the case of mistaken identity. And I believe that was the theme of all the uh, theme of all the poets, other writers that have been chosen. And since I was given such loose parameters, I came up with this idea of Henry Dumas uh, still being dead and the transit cop who shot him on a bench in the uh, on a bench in this about a bench where he was shot, and taking it from there, seeing how they interact with each other. So yes, I'm being pressured a little bit to finish it, not too much though, and I'm looking forward to working on it. 
some more. But what I've been actively working on is my next book of poetry, which is In the Room of Thirst and Hungers. So there's always a lot to work on. Things from coming through the door at you. Yeah, well, that, that's their worst problems to have. Wait, what year was Dumas shot? Uh, I want to say 68, if I remember correctly. It was somewhere around there. Maybe it was 65, mm-hmm. which shows how long I've had this thing on the back burner now, because so, that's in the place. Right, right. Wow, that's, yeah, that's, um, <clears throat> that's powerfully, uh, I guess, Sadly, a timely and ongoing theme for America here. Yes. Um, and so, and you, and so, you have. A, uh, are you going to have a staged reading? What are they going to do with this once, once you? Submit? Robert Henry Johnson runs sixty million plus theater, and I have no idea what he plans to do with it. He's had several ideas. I know he has another festival coming up, and he may want to do it in there. But it originally started off as like a three or four page uh, play, but it's ballooned. I told him there was no way it was going to stay that way, so he may do it as a solo piece. That's what I'd like for him to do. So we'll see. That sounds good. How lovely to have a commission. I mean, that's one of the things we lack often is somebody out there externally saying, please turn this in soon. Yes, yes. It does make a difference. And normally, you know, it actually increases uh, your desire to do it. And I don't like the desire to do it, but the time is always a factor. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it kind of makes it legitimate to take the time. You, you must. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, I am working on a memoir, and um, I, I, what I'm mostly working on this week is is trying to really dig in and select what belongs in it out of the enormous mass of material um, and, and carve away everything that doesn't have to be there. So that's been kind of, I had a, a good a good old friend of mine came and sat with me and said, okay, let's look at the three key memories. And then she said, okay, let's look at three more and kind of zeroed in on about, well, now it's about, it's up to about eight now, but like just zeroing in on, on that. And, you know. Very nice. That's been so helpful. I was listening to uh, Stephen King's own writing today, which I probably listened to about eight or nine times. And I was at the section where he was talking about going back and and asking yourself, what's this all about exactly? What am I writing this for? Hmm. It sounds like that's where you are right now. It really is. Now, do you have that same process with in your different genres? I mean, say with a poem, you know, which is generally a much shorter, tighter piece. Do you do you have that same thing of kind of exploring wide-ranging imagery or ideas? I know poetry and music and historical figures and all of those come in and then then finding out what it's, uh, you know, how to filter that or how, what's your process with that? I think my process is uh, they're much different when it comes to uh, my poetry. It usually starts with a single emotion or an image and I'm wrapping some context around it. And I will sit down and write down everything that I can think of, everything that's coming to me. And it may be 70 lines, but by the time the poem's finished, it may be 14 lines or 12 lines. So there's an incredible culling process that takes place where I'm stripping out anything that that doesn't further the poem. And it used to be that you know I was stripping out, when I first started, I was stripping out everything that, that didn't sound good. And now, you know, it's 
like him always says, you kill your darlings. Uh, I strip out anything. I trust my process now. I've been doing it long enough that I don't despair if I'm stripping out something that sounds really good. I just get rid of it if it doesn't serve the poem. So, yeah, it's a much different process. I think fiction actually comes easier to me than poetry. The fiction just flows from me. Obviously, you know, you have to go back and do the editing. But poetry is much harder for me, and the process is vastly different. And do you think that's the reason you've, you've focused on poetry more than fiction, because it's harder? Yeah, that was actually it. Most people think it's because poetry comes easier to me. Actually, someone had told me long ago that I'd never be any good at poetry, so that sort of sharpened my desire to try. And actually, I feel a lot of the things that I had to express early on, uh, poetry was the vehicle for it. But I feel a little more expansive now, if I can say that. And yeah, I'm exploring different genres. And when I got my master's, that's what I wanted to learn, how to write in genres and what the psychological changes were necessary to write in different genres. Say that again about the psychological change. Oh, the psychological psychological change is necessary to write in different genres. That's what that's why I went back to school. I wanted to learn that because I know they're different, and they're not just different because they look different. There's a different mindset that has to take place to write in different genres, and I wanted to not only learn how to do it, but how to teach others to do it. So talk, can you talk about those different mindsets and also like, do you have any rituals for getting yourself into one or the other mindset, you know, or do you, do you know which one you're, you're aiming for and how do you do it? Yes, there, uh, there is, there, let's put it this way, there used to be a ritual I have to go through, right, where I'd start reading in the genre that I was going to write in, but now it's gotten to the point where I click over where I feel that click almost instantly. And I know how it's how the writing difference. Um, let's, let's, the stage and screen are the two easiest just to get across quickly. So I'll give you an example of that. Uh, let's say that you're writing a stage play and you're trying to get across that a man is working hard, he's at work, he's working hard and he is late for dinner at home, his wife is at home waiting on him. So you have him sitting there and he's working, you can see that. Someone may come in and say, wow, you're still here? And he says, yes. And he says, aren't you supposed to be at home and with your wife at dinner? All this has to happen verbally. Then he says, oh my God, he gets up and he rushes out. Now let's say that's a screenplay. And in this, you see, you have a shot where you see visually the man sitting there working. You may get a close-up of him typing, get a close-up of his face. You'll get a cut scene to the wife. She's sitting at, sitting at home at the dinner table. She is, the candles are lit, the food is on both sides of the table. Uh, it cuts back to him, he's still working, cuts back to her. She snuffs out the candle, cuts back to him, says, oh my God, he gets up and rushes out. Not a word has been said throughout the whole thing. Right. One is yeah, one is language driven and one is image driven. And too often you can tell when someone started off as a fiction writer or some type of writer and they're trying to write for the screen because they try to do everything through dialogue, which sounds nice, but it's not what the audience came there for. And if you want a perfect example of that, see uh the movie Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. 
it's a wonderful film if you like language but the stage play and the screenplay pretty much resemble each other and there's a reason why the stage play was so successful and the screenplay bombed the same guy wrote it and he still was writing it as if it was a stage play everything is done through language right so now how about the poem for the, of that guy sitting there forgetting his wife and <laughs> <laughs> well for the poem of that guy sitting there i would you you have a little more expansive uh you get to do more you get to talk about why he's there you get to talk about exactly the emotion that has him there i, I liken it to a snow globe where let's say that uh you have an image of a winter scene inside a snow globe now pretend that the glass is one emotion everything inside that globe everything that you see has to support that one emotion so you can't extrapolate you can't talk about the past unless it's dealing with that emotion if you're talking about fiction you can bring more in there you can talk about other things that don't necessarily support that emotion because you may be foreshadowing something or coming back to something later but you're dealing with one single moment and one single motion emotion usually in poetry the language is much tighter and the imagery is vastly different uh, if we're talking about fiction imagery, it's usually sharpening something you've already gotten across to the audience. And But if you're talking about poetic imagery, it could be something that maybe even the audience doesn't necessarily completely get, but it still supports that emotion that's necessary. So it's two vastly different mindsets. Well, actually, they're all different mindsets when you're trying to write them. Getting the poetry and the fiction across usually takes a lot longer. If you took one of my classes, it's a lot clearer. <laughs> That's wonderful. No, I love it. And, um, and, and you know, it, it makes me think about reading sort of being, you know, you talked about the, with the poetry, the reader may not understand it as explicitly. And I know I've actually been doing this thing of getting up early in the morning and kind of while still in a dream state um, reading poetry. And I find nice. that I understand it as if it were mm -hmm. narrative prose. Um, as, as the way I understand narrative prose when I'm more awake. <laughs> um, do you also kind of choose when you're reading, do you choose based on kind of what psychological mindset you're in as you do with writing? No, it's usually whatever I look at on my shelf and pick up and think, wow, I'd like to read this. Yeah. It's usually <laughs> something that simple or something that someone has suggested to me. <laughs> uh, let's see. Debbie here has said, I'm stealing the snow globe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be my guess. Yes. Um, that is wonderful. Um, so, um, so I was also curious about voice in, in, you know, and particularly because I heard you read your poetry um, and, mm -hmm. and, it ha and the ones at least that you read, you know, and maybe you choose them because of this to read aloud, but they, they are, they're, they're strongly voice driven and, um, and almost, you know, so they have some element of, of the monologue and I, and then of course you do playwriting too. So do you see a relationship there? Uh, there can be, but the poems that I chose to read at that time, as you said, I was looking, it was based on what I saw from the audience. So I read poems that were more voice driven uh, and just trying to make a connection with the audience. At other times, I would read vastly different poems. So there's not, there, was a, there was a connection in the poems that I read, but not necessarily a connection in all the poems that I read. 
Is that an intuitive read of the audience that you're doing? Is it a sociological read? What are you, what are you noticing? That I would like to say that it's intuitive and sociological, but in the end, it's just a wild-ass guess. If you look at them and you think, well, I believe that they're like this, especially when someone's reading before you, you get an idea of what they're paying attention to and when they're looking at their watch. And so, yeah. <laughs> That's that's pretty. Not that any audience would ever do that. Yes. Um, Now, how about in terms of plot, or you know, you said you said with poetry, you start with one single feeling or or image, um, and and I don't know if you know where plot comes into to your other work. You know, is it well? Well, obviously, everyone has an idea of plot, but my work tends to be a little more character driven in that, you know, I have an idea where I think it's going, but once I flesh the characters out, they change the stories all the time. And I prefer it that way. I like being surprised by what they do. And then how about in revision? Do you, do you push it different ways? Are you digging in for what, what you know? Obviously, you know, I have an idea of, like I said, of where I want it to go, but I feel that it's a little truer and the work reads better when I let the characters take it to where it's going to go. Yeah, yeah. Try not to push it to a certain place. <laughs> um, so you also have worked as an editor of the, the Tule Review, is that correct? I was one of the editors for the Tule Review, yes. So can you just talk, because a lot of my students and listeners are writers and I'm interested in, you know, and so it's, it's really helpful sometimes to see the submission process from both sides. And actually you've been so successful as, as a poet and playwright. So maybe you can talk about kind of building a career from the position of being a creative person. And then also what, what it's like to be an editor and what that's taught you about how to submit and how to go about that. I think uh, for being an editor, it's not necessarily taught me how to submit, but it's taught me to not be so thin-skinned about it. Uh, Sometimes you're rejecting poems that are really good, but you've already got a poem that fits this particular slot that you're trying to that you're trying to fill and sometimes it comes down to personal taste of the editor i know personally for me if you know someone sends me a poem that rhymes it better be immortal because i am just not that person that accepts it i'm, I'm just not that person and some people have sent poems that are rhymed that have just been wonderful and i've seen poems that are rhymed that that was so good that it was the third reading before I realized that it rhymed. But you never know who you're submitting to. You never know what they have in mind. You never know. And so don't be thin-skinned about it, especially if they don't send back saying, you know, this is horrible, or you didn't read the magazine. You get it, you send it off somewhere else. The editorial process is a difficult one. Uh, if we're talking manuscripts, then the advice that I would have is to call and kill off your darlings and get the smallest, best manuscript that you can get. If you have a poem in a manuscript that you know the only reason it's in there is because it's a good poem and it doesn't fit the arc, the chances are that poem, no matter how good it is, will prevent the manuscript from being chosen. 
you know when the poem is put in there because you thought it was trying to connect one place to another. It's like this poem fits in there perfectly, even though it's not great. Get it out of there. You got to trust the editor because when you're getting a lot of manuscripts for book contests and these manuscripts are so tight and so perfect, those extraneous poems will keep it from getting chosen. Mm, that's great. And I know there was another part to that that you want. Oh, building a career. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> all. So you ask me about that in 10 years, and we'll see how that's working for me. Are you sending your – I mean, you've gotten all the you know, wonderful awards and recognition, and, and I know that, you know, in between all of those, there's there's the rejections and the things that are required in order to get there. But are you – do you have any methodology to sending out your work regularly or – I have a I have a fantastic methodology. I just don't follow it, but I'm great at telling people how to do it. Uh, my la- I'm trying to do it right this time with my third book of poetry. I've always been a person that I finished a manuscript, and both times it's been accepted for publication. I've won an award, and then I realized, oh my God, I haven't actually sent any of these individual poems out for publication yet. So I'm sending it out in a mad dash and saying, hey, you know, this book has been accepted, Northwestern University Press. I'm ready to put your name in the acknowledgments page. Please just print it. Uh, it's not the way it's supposed to be done. You should be writing and sending out. And I'm trying to do a better job with this manuscript. And, and it works this way, too. Who, who knew? So, yeah, I'm sending the poems out, and they're getting published, and life is beautiful. So, yes, I have a fantastic methodology. And I'm actually following it, so. I love it. It just took three, you know, two, two published books to get to your methodology. Exactly. Oh, I knew it. I'm just, yeah, I'm scattered sometimes. <laughs> well, in addition to having uh, some, some fighting here over who gets to steal the snow globe and who gets to steal the wild ass guessing about the audience, um, we have a question here for you. Uh, how long does it take you to revise? Uh, we're talking poetry, fiction, stage, screen, any of it. Any of it. Uh, poetry, some poems come out. My... my I'm, I'm a lot faster at writing poetry than I used to be, but I'm a lot more exacting. Uh, by taking a sabbatical, and I was working on my new book, and it, it got to a point where I was writing a poem a day, and really a poem and a half a day. And they're all, there are four quatrains and a couplet, each one. And it, it's, it's very quick. I'd say it as much as a day for the most part. And I may come back and change some things later. But my revision process is very fast because I trust my process now. Even when I'm writing, I just write. And I, I know that some people say they wait for inspiration. And I don't know who said it, but said it, they said they don't wait for, in, for inspiration. They hunt it down with a stick. And that's the way I feel when I'm writing. Once I've decided what I'm going to write about, I just sit down and friggin' write the thing. And if I get stuck, I'll stop for a second, maybe read someone else's poem, but I keep writing and keep writing and keep writing until the thing is finished. And I think part of it is because I don't stress anymore if uh, I lose a train of thought or I had an image and I lost it. I know that this works for me. I know that if I keep writing that it works. I've done it enough to know that I get good poems out of it. 
uh, with fiction, it's it's a lot longer because you know I'm writing, and of course it wants to go forever, and you finally come to a conclusion of the short story or whatever, and then you go back and see all the things you could change, and you don't have time, so you change it the next day or the next day after that, and my revision process can be three or four times before it's ready. Uh, with stage plays. That's probably my longest thing because it's my longest uh, process as far as revision is, is concerned because I'm constantly trying to make it tighter. Live at the Excelsior started off 132 pages. It's down to 86. And even now I'm looking at ways that I could change and maybe even eliminate one of the characters, which is important when you look at the stage because the fewer characters, the easier it is to get it on stage. So each one's different. Poetry is the shortest. Uh, screen, eh, it's still in progress as far as figuring out how to do it. Fiction's a little bit longer, and stage plays the longest. I just revise and revise and revise. But you're writing... never be. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Yes. So you're writing the screenplay of your stage play that was optioned. Is that correct? I'm working on an original screenplay now called The Clown Wrangler. And are you using any of the kind? I mean, is it kind of an indie screenplay? Or are you are you looking at kind of Hollywood formulas at all? Or um, no, I, see, I'm fortunate that I, I don't have to worry about doing all of this for a living. So no, I'm not looking at the Hollywood formula. As a matter of fact, uh, I was talking to a friend, and he, he was noting a problem with the screenplay. He said, "Wait a minute, you're the main character." for the first 15 minutes of the, of the screenplay is unconscious. He said, nobody does that. I'm like, well, I'm doing it. So, and I'm going to keep doing it because it works. I like the way it looks. I like the way it's building the backstory while still moving forward. Yeah, 15 minutes in, this guy will wake up and he will wake up in a situation that we already know about that he has no clue. So I'm loving it. I could almost say that I don't know what happened there. I can almost say that, that that's like, um, you know, that could be the act one decision. And yes, <laughs> might yes. actually nap onto a kind of Hollywood formula. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's great. Um, uh, let's see. So, so will you read us a poem or two? Absolutely. Now, you had told me that, some, uh, that you have some people working on memoir. Yes, memoir, yes. and as well as novels and things, yeah. All right, perfect. Okay, there's a couple of uh, classes I teach. One is entitled uh, Fictionalizing Reality, and the other is entitled, to write, entitled Writing to History and Culture. So I thought I'd read a couple of poems that were somewhat narrative, but also uh, gave examples in them of how reality is fictionalized and how I'm making sure that within the writing of the poem that I keep you grounded in exactly the error and the time and the, and the place of the poem. So this one is entitled Last Call Improv. My apology melts into vodka and swirling ice. Her fingers lost trace the links on her necklace. On stage, Cecil Taylor cuts heads with his quartet. A tunnel waves plug the silences in our last dinner together. Two cliff divers on a dizzying drop from grace. 
A rapid descent key change closes her eyes. Cecil's fingers dig into a flat B, drag us into the rhythm. My breath grazes her ear. Baby, do you remember when Cecil played that set that smokes in the city? She leans away into stage like glare. That wasn't him. Cecil's fingers duel with ivory. Keys obey, heart pulp and blood fruit stain the Steinway's checkered grin. Her hand slips away as Adagio moves to Allegro. The bass player growls his wide-legged stance. On the table, my returned key is a well beached beyond the sweat of her glass. The rhythm leans us into Calypso. Cecil stomps fire wood to wood, kicks out the back wall, blacks out the sun. Twenty years ago, she wore black silk. I kissed her in the field before a rise of quail against burnt red clouds. That day, Cecil Smith curled smooth as incense from my radio as we teased the xylophone of each other's spine. The drummer hits a tripwire, drags me away from shrapnel memories. We snap our fingers to the deep sweetness trapped in our skin, but there are still no words we share. A tear rolls down her cheek. She wipes it away before I can. Oh, it's hard to imagine, you know, your 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 process, your described process, because it seems as if it, it it's what so singular a piece, you know, that just the, this line had to come here and this that, that it had to unfold in this way, even as it's ranging across time and memory. Well, thank you. And that, uh, yeah, that's the editing process. Uh, some of those lines uh, from the beginning were beneath, beside other lines that there's another class I teach called Balancing Image to Statement. And in it, we go over the process of doing precisely that, of making sure that you don't have such image-laden work that it bogs down the meaning or having such statement-driven work that one that no longer seems poetic, but it's sort of dull and listless. And sometimes you're moving things around and you're taking them to a place where you have moved away from the factual process or the factual understanding of what happened and getting more toward the verisimilitude, where you're making sure that you're more getting across the emotional content of what happened than necessarily the factual truth. And that poem definitely fits that category. Yeah, yeah. But you can feel the emotion is in the images, right? I mean, it, it's so yes. rich. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you very much. Now, does this mean you're going to be reading something for us, too? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but maybe another one on my I don't know. You started off talking about what we were working on together. I figured I'd be getting something, too. But... <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, it could just be stalling as I look through the other point. Any one of those. Does anyone have a question? Is I'm flipping through here, so there's no dead space. Oh, oh yeah. I'll, uh, let's see. We have some comments here. Wow and beautiful have come in over the transom. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me who that was. Oh, Thank and, you. And a 
request that you read another one. <laughs> uh, yes, I want to read uh, One Summer. And I think this is a poem that I read, that I read. As a matter of fact, I think I started off with this poem. One of the reasons, I, obviously you could tell I'm not the shyest person in the world. And I usually have an idea of what I'm going to say very briefly before each poem. And one of the reasons I like starting a reading with this poem from time to time is that it doesn't really require any, uh, any prologue. One summer, I could only hold my children in poems. I thought us cursed, a witch tormenting our name. Scoliosis rioted along my youngest daughter's spine. I slept for a week beneath gray walls and ceilings, seven sunsets sprouting over the horizon while in another room, my oldest daughter, her first son sliced from her, shuffled gingerly as if over coals and broken glass from bed to bathroom, holding her belly, both our hearts in such small hands. Shrunken into a corner, my son, he and his guitar strapped to a long sun tonality, trying to ratchet down a single note for loneliness. In my worst dreams, we are Icarus, winging across a rusted desert. Next scene, they are gut shot. One, two, three, black wings flailing against broken air. Composite scream vibrating through my bones. I turn, not looking and leap, hoping to be Father God's savior, but I carry two cursed hands that can't possibly hold the explosions blossoming in my chest. In my best dreams, our fingernails actually touch before we all fall. Yeah, I love that one. He read that one at the reading as well. That's yes. <clears throat> now. I don't know what the rules are. I know in fiction, people are always irritated because everybody's looking for autobiography in it. <laughs> but since you brought up the, the lines between fiction and reality and poetry and reality, yes. can, you, can you speak to drawing on, on life and, um, and yet shaping it for a poem? Absolutely. Uh, Desiree Cooper, who uh, I don't know if she still works for NPR. I know she used to. She uh, was given an interview and she had said that uh, she has an absolute belief in the truth. But sometimes to get at that truth, she has to fictionalize the events. I was doing a workshop in the Gold Rush Writers Conference uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, my good friend Louisa Giulianetti and I were teaching fictionalizing reality. And we did an exercise at the end whereby first a person is writing about something difficult, a difficult conversation that they either had with someone or didn't have with someone, where there was something that they wished they had said. So first I had them do it from their viewpoint, and then I had them do it from the other person's viewpoint. And the reason being is because when you hear from their viewpoint, there's always things that they gloss over. And in one case, a woman is talking about how this, she was talking to someone and they were on this tirade and they were complaining about their ex-husband. But when they told from, when she told from her view, her own view, 
she just mentioned it as a tirade and how tiring it was. But when I forced her to tell it from the other view, she actually had to actually talk about exactly what it was. So even though she may not remember exactly what it was, she knew enough to give the emotional, the gist of it. So now she has the opportunity to take that, to take what she wrote, the actual tirade, put it in the first version, and no longer have to tell us that there was a tirade. But now she's showing us what the tirade was. And just her reading what the woman was saying, it was exhausting everyone there. So we got the feel of it. This happens all the time in fiction uh, or in real life. How many times have we been in an argument with someone that later on, you're both talking about what happened in the argument and neither one of you have probably has exactly what it was. And yet we fear to tell the story the way that we need to tell it to make it a story. We fictionalize reality all the time. Even autobiographies are the way that they remember it happened. There is a wonderful short story by uh, Amy England that I wish I could find or had time to read, but it's, uh, it's in her book, The Flute Ship. And it's called Orchard. And in this story, she's telling this wonderful story that her grandmother told her. But halfway through the story that she's telling, she talks about asking her grandmother about the story later on, and she had gotten all the particulars wrong. But by the end, the story was so ingrained in the uh, writer that she was actually imagining that she had been there. And that's what happens all the time when writing fiction or autobiography, creative nonfiction. There's really no such thing as the truth. But you get as close as you can, of course, with uh, nonfiction. It's a little more fun with creative nonfiction because like in that story I was telling before, you get to create what happened from at least from your standpoint, what you remember. And when it comes to fiction, all bets are off. And the same thing with poetry. Mostly in poetry, we're writing, it could have happened this way. We're not necessarily stuck by the truth at all. And I love that. It's one of the freedoms of it. That's great. No idea if I answered your question. No, I love that. It could have happened this way, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got a friend who was writing a series of poems from uh Jimi Hendrix's viewpoint, you know, Jimi Hendrix, uh, his mother had left and he grew up with his father, what it was like. Now, obviously, uh, oh my gosh. Okay, if we have time at the end, there's a, since we're talking about this, I would love to come back to a short poem that I wrote. And it's, uh, it's Langston Hughes discussing a conversation that he had with Ernest Hemingway. It's in my new manuscript. And we know that Langston Hughes and Ernest Hemingway were both correspondents to the Spanish Civil War in 1937. We know for a fact that they were friends. It is rumored that they went to bullfights together because they both loved bullfights. And so I'm writing about a conversation that the two had, but in it I had to do so much work research because you don't want to be saying something, at least for this book, something that they wouldn't have said is something that they might not have talked about. So it's creative nonfiction without a doubt and basically just fiction. It could have happened this way. It could have happened this way. I, I would like, if you have it on hand, why don't you go ahead and read it? That would be wonderful. Oh my gosh, I would have to find it and we don't yeah. want any dead space up here. So. <laughs> All right, well, you, you can, <laughs> well, if you happen to come across it, maybe while, while we're doing the steal this, we can wrap up with it. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, who do you love to read? Who are you reading right now? Oh, 
or what? Let's see. Oh, I'm rereading uh, Patricia Smith's Blood Dazzler. Um, oh, I'm uh, looking at uh, the Pulp Fiction screenplay. And those are the two things that I'm looking at. I'm listening to a lot of things since, you know, my job requires me just sitting there. Um, so I listen to a lot of things. Job, you're an engineer, is that right? I'm an engineer, yeah. So you're you're listening. Your 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 mind is up here now. But you must be. What are you engineering? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a physical design engineer for Intel. If you cut open a, like a memory chip, a computer chip, and looked at it through an electron microscope, it looks like a three-dimensional city. I draw a physical the physical construction of that three-dimensional city. Wow. <laughs> is there any relationship uh, between that work and your creative work? Yes. What allows me to pay the bills and do the other? I'll let you figure out which way that goes. <laughs> There's something so metaphorical about this little city in a microchip. <laughs> I'll take your word for that. <laughs> So, uh, so while you're doing that, while you're building computer chip city worlds, you're also listening to uh, to books on tape. I gather. Yes, yes, audio books definitely love them. Do you have you done audiobooks for any of your manuscripts? For your I have not, but I would love to. I think I, I think I have the voice for it, but I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, there's not a big there's not a big uh, there's not a big drama for it when you're talking about poetry, but. Yeah, I'd love to give it a try. Who knows, though? Maybe this is the untapped market, the poetry audiobook. You know, it's just there aren't enough out there to know what the demand is. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Usually for something for that to be true, there has to have been a big market for it before. People are looking for another form for it. And yeah, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing a huge market for poetry. I could be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you talk before we go into our final wrap up can you just say a word or two about creating character you said your work is character driven um, yeah. and you've talked wonder about this wonderful exercise that kind of I think is almost a spiritual exercise forcing a character to go, to go look at the other um, I think all right but um, how do you find your way into character um I live inside my head anyway, so uh, once I create a character, I'm creating their backstory, everything that they've been through, and it may never show up in the actual work, but it doesn't have to because what it does is it gives their speech patterns, it gives, it tell, describes how they would most likely react in a particular situation. And in, in my novel, there was a character that I thought was going to be there for one or two paragraphs. and her background dictated that she acted so rebellious in a particular situation that she now has a chapter dedicated to her. She may even be almost a fourth of the book because she just refuses to fit the norm or the, uh, the little the little pigeonhole that I had for her at first. And she just keeps coming up with creative ways to get what she wants. Oh, I that comes from, you know, knowing her. I know her background. I knew how she grew up. I know what her parents were like. I know what her siblings were like. I know the different situations that got her to where she is. 
And most of that never shows up in the novel, but it doesn't have to. It shows up in her speech patterns and her actions. Mm, I love that. I love that. So uh, as I mentioned to you off air, we have a, a little feature called Steal This, where we talk about something we've come across this, uh, this week that we want to um, not so much borrow as make our own. Um, anything that, that qualifies for you? Well, I've been stalking this guy on Facebook. Uh, Ewan, I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher his name. I think it's Ewan Wall, Owen Walls. It's spelled E O G H A N, and he lives in England. And he wrote a book called uh, The Salt Harvest. And the density of his work, and he's one of those people that you know, I'm reading his work, and it took me a couple of readings to realize, oh my God, he's writing in form. It's just done that well, so seamlessly. And I am absolutely just trying to steal how he's doing what he's doing. I don't even know what it is yet, but once I figure it out, I may have to, you know, go and push him off the edge of England into the ocean and just say, oh, look at me. This is how I'm doing it. I'm the only one doing it this way. He's just fabulous. I love the guy. Luckily, England is an island, so. Yes, it is. Yeah, that's why it's easy. Yeah. yeah. No matter what age he hits, he's in danger. I love it. Well, I have been listening to an audio book, which actually is relatively new for me. Um, and um, and I'm, I'm listening to The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer, who is um, within the Dresden Dolls. And, and anyway, she um, she's reading it herself and, and then periodically singing. And uh, it's it's quite intriguing. But I really I like her voice. I like that she is. Um, in fact, she might have graduated from one of your classes because she she's got a really nice blend of image and statement and story and kind of uh, she's you know it's it's sort of a how to book. It's called the art of asking how or how I learned to stop worrying and let people help. So it's got the but it's also deeply memoir and all these stories about how she was a brought she did she worked as a. Um, statue, you know, in Harvard Square or whatever, you know, one of those like statues. And, um, yeah, so um, I just, I, I just love her, um, her blend of, of, um, telling and showing and her, and her voice that kind of just carries me along. So I'm, I've been, I've noticed that kind of creeping into my own work. No, I won't say I'm singing. I'm just, uh, but it's, there's something else. I mean, I sing alone in the shower. <laughs> singing shower. Uh, did you happen to come across your poem? <laughs> no, I was trying and trying because I didn't want to be rude and just be staring down the whole time. I know that it was part of the World Series of Poetry, but I'm not seeing it. Uh, well, we'll have to all go and hunt for it. And um, it sounds like you're maybe working well, it's not, on it. It's not published anywhere yet. It's okay. Even though I say that I'm sending out all my poems everywhere, it's still a slow process. I've got a bunch of poems that I need to actually send somewhere <laughs> to be published. So we have to wait for it. Now, but you are you you like you're doing a series. Um, I see in the, I've seen here and there that you're doing a series of these kind of conversations and voices between different historical characters. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I got the idea from doing a study on Othello, and I was reading what I thought was a, what the, was a characterization of Othello, and it turned out to be a characterization of Paul Robeson, and I realized just how similar the two, the two people were. And that's why Paul Robeson's uh, 
portrayal of Othello is considered the definitive portrayal because they were basically the same person. So I got this idea of them being long lost cousins writing to each other uh, as if they were in the same time period. Obviously, they're not. One's 17th century, one is you know, 20th century. And I'm exploring just so many different aspects of the, the two different worlds that they lived in and the similarities of the two different worlds, how women were treated, how African Americans and the Moors were treated, the, the persecution of the Moors, the persecution of African Americans, uh, how you can see so many similarities between Joseph McCarthy and Iago. It's, I'm enjoying it. That sounds amazing. Well, while we're waiting to find your, while we're waiting for the release of the poem, can you tell people where they can find you and how they can follow you? Indigomore.org. As long as you remember that there's no E at the end of more, I'm easy to find. <laughs> well, wonderful. Thank you so, so much for, for talking to, uh, to me. It was such a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Yeah, have a great day. Bye-bye.